This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. I am Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University, and with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Hi, Darren. On today's episode, we are going to begin by discussing one of my favourite topics, geoeconomics. It's a term you find increasingly mentioned in the world of international relations, so we are going to unpack it a little with reference to a few recent stories about renegotiating infrastructure financing in Myanmar, and we'll finish with some thoughts about the consular dimension of Australian foreign policy, given the Julian Assange case has put this in the spotlight. Okay, let's get started. So first, we will begin with geoeconomics. Now, if you have never heard this term before, perhaps other than on this podcast, you might be thinking right now, is it just geopolitics but with economics involved? But if so, what does that even mean? So, Alan, I wanted to start with your practitioner's perspective. What do you understand geoeconomics to be and why is it increasingly a subject of policy discussion? Well, as you say, Darren, it's a word on many Canberra lips at the moment. It's being defined, I guess, as the use of economic tools to advance geopolitical objectives. We first saw it, or at least I first paid attention to it, I guess, in the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper, which talked about even as growth was binding the economies of the Indo-Pacific, trade and investment and infrastructure development were being used as instruments to build strategic influence, as well as bring commercial advantage. In a sign of uh, its bipartisan use, Penny Wong has uh, previously announced that an incoming Labor government would establish a new category of geoeconomic councillors across the diplomatic network. An important reason, I think, for the, the appearance of the term is, of course, China's rise. For about 10 years after 9-11, the security focus we had was all on non-state threats and ungoverned regions, all that sort of thing. And once the global financial crisis emerged, we realised that old-fashioned concepts like states and economic power still mm. mattered and that the geopolitical world had not gone away. But it was a geopolitical world that looked rather different from the one we'd been used to during the Cold War, which was the last time we'd focused on it. Uh, the Soviet Union, of course, was an economic irrelevance to the West and to the third world. China, on the other hand, was using very different economic tools to advance its interest. So geoeconomics was a way of contrasting the international politics of our time with the 1970s mm. and 80s. But look, I, I think something else is also underway. I suspect that it's emerged as a response to fading ideas about globalisation. Globalisation had been talked about as a sort of supranational project driven by the power of global markets. And geoeconomics is a way of inserting the state 
back into the process. But this is a concept which is keeping the academic community busy at the moment, Darren. I know that because I've attended a number of workshops over at the ANU on this uh, question. And as you say, and you've, you've spoken about before on this podcast, it's very close to your own work. So what do you make of it? Yes, well, geoeconomics, at least in, in my knowledge, was originally coined uh, as a term by Edward Ludwig in the early 1990s. And as you say, Alan, to capture this idea of the logic of conflict being pursued with the methods of commerce. But of course, nation states have been using economics to wage war and to exercise power more broadly for centuries, even millennia. I mean, economic sanctions gets a play in the Thucydides book, The the Peloponnesian War. So our listeners are probably more familiar with some of these more old-fashioned concepts like blockades and embargoes and good old-fashioned economic sanctions, but also positive instruments like trade agreements, foreign aid and foreign investment. In the IR literature, in the international relations literature, this category has long been called economic statecraft. And I guess in the highly interdependent 21st century, the reason we have this new term or this new term has become more popular is that the range of means and methods through which economic statecraft can be practiced has broadened. And of course, we now have a new interesting practitioner of economic statecraft being China. I've been thinking about this for some time and I've got a couple of shorter and longer research projects in the pipeline, but let me offer two distinct definitions or perhaps conceptualizations of geoeconomics for our listeners. The first one, which I'll call direct geoeconomics, is this idea of intentional instruments of statecraft, where a government is strategically employing economic policy tools for the purpose of achieving non-economic objectives. For example, trying to change the security policies of a target nation state. In contrast to direct geoeconomics, you have indirect geoeconomics, which describes the strategic consequences of economic activity. So this is a situation where you have normal market transactions, normal economic actors doing their thing in the market, but as a result of their behaviour, what we think of as security externalities are generated. So these are byproducts of this market activity that somehow affect national security dynamics. Now, of course, there are multiple mechanisms through which direct and indirect geoeconomic effects manifest. However, I think the unifying theme of them all is this link between economics and politics. Economic instruments can be effective because they affect the individual welfare of market actors, individuals, consumers, firms, etc. In other words, they create winners and losers in a domestic economy, and those winners and losers will in turn take political action to protect their own interests. So the most effective types of geoeconomic strategy are going to be those that understand the political economy of the recipient countries, of the target countries. So if I had to summarise geoeconomics in a single analytical frame or a single line of inquiry, it would be in the local economy, who wins and loses from geoeconomic activity and how much political power do they have to affect national policy? And this applies, of course, whether we are talking about old school instruments like economic sanctions or foreign aid or modern variants such as infrastructure diplomacy and informal economic coercion. 
Alan, do you have any reaction to that academic discussion before we move on to some recent examples? Uh, look, to the extent that I understand it, Darren, um, <laughs> I fully agree. I fully agree that economics looks very much like old-fashioned statecraft, and you don't have to look very far to find examples. Uh, what was the Marshall Plan after the Second World War, but a geoeconomic program to shore up Western Europe against a perceived communist threat? But you talked before about the instruments. What are the contemporary examples that you've been seeing as you look around in your research? Well, before we turn to contemporary examples, your mention of the Marshall Plan makes me think of maybe my favourite example, uh, which was described by Albert Hirschman in his 1945 book, National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade, in which he explained how Nazi Germany was able to use trade concessions to its neighbours to create favourable domestic coalitions within recipient countries in Central Europe. And those favourable um, coalitions were the ones who pushed for an alignment of their country's foreign policy with Germany. I think that's the, the key idea here, and it is a complex one, that if you're going to be successful, what you're doing is creating political support within the target country for aligning broader foreign policies and security policies with the, with the main country. And so if you're going to be successful, you have to understand mm. or appreciate that political economy dynamic. So let's move on to the recent example, though, and I, and, and I really am excited by this one. It came out in a piece um, that was published in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week, and I'll link to it in the show notes. The title of the piece was, US Goes on the Offensive Against China's Empire Building Funding Plan. And it's a story about how in uh, 2018, last year, Myanmar successfully renegotiated the terms of a multi-billion dollar port and industrial zone construction contract with Chinese lenders. The Myanmar government succeeded in reducing the scale of the project and thereby reducing the amount of debt incurred to Chinese interests. Now, what was so interesting about this article was that uh, it was reported that the Myanmar negotiators had help in their negotiations from a team of US economists, diplomats and lawyers. Quote, dispatched to the country on a pilot program to scrutinise contracts, flag bad deals and empower the country to push for better terms. Alan, your reaction to this piece? Well, that sounds perfectly sensible to me. And um, I gather it was a US uh, AID mm. program uh, designed to help the Burmese with capacity building when dealing with very large uh, and complex infrastructure projects. Uh, that sort of thing actually seems to me a better response than scrambling around to provide competitive uh, offers and something that's likely to have better outcomes for the recipient country. And I don't think it's all that different from some of the capacity building work that the Australian aid program does. When you were framing this discussion, Darren, you, you mentioned that one of the ways geoeconomics manifests itself is in strategic consequences. Now, I know you've been looking at some of these. Yes. Well, I think that actually applies in the context of this example in Myanmar. But, you know, the, the idea of strategic consequences, or as you know, I've been calling them security externalities, is that these ordinary market transactions, buying and selling, investing and so forth, have some flow on effect that has strategic implications. Now, the classic old school example was dual use technology, you know, a strategic rival seeks to import a certain widget that is sold commercially and used in commercial manufacturing. 
but that widget could also be used by the military to make an advanced weapon. And governments, especially during the Cold War, have long sought to limit the export of such dual-use technologies, since even though the exporting country and its firm gets the revenue from the sale, they are also giving up a military advantage to their strategic rival. And as I said before, part of the reason geoeconomics is such a complex topic in the 21st century is the scope and the depth of these types of strategic consequences has expanded rapidly. And one of the most prominent examples is the one raised by this Myanmar case where a developing country negotiates infrastructure financing but that agreement is somehow flawed whether because the project itself won't generate a healthy rate of return or because of a lack of transparency in the contracting which allows for corruption or lacks environmental standards. Or maybe simply that the level of debt is too much for the overall economy to bear. And this idea has been a central point of contention with China's Belt and Road Initiative. And we saw this most famously in Sri Lanka, which uh, handed over control of one of their ports at Hambantota to Chinese interests in return for debt relief. And many described this at the time as being debt trap diplomacy, some sense that the Chinese were deliberately trying to entrap the Sri Lankans with these high levels of debt. And I don't think that's actually the most relevant feature of this case. What was more important in the Sri Lanka case was you had an interaction of an overall weak economy that was suffering sort of a macroeconomic crisis, in particular with its balance of payments. And that weak economy was interacting with these high levels of debt that were attached to an underperforming asset being this port. And so just as you would have over-leveraged property investors in Australia who have to sell off their assets if the housing market takes a downturn, if you have a situation where a country is weak and is saddled with this asset that's underperforming, then it may need to offload that asset in order to pay down some of its debt. And so in one sense, it doesn't really matter whether you know, China's interests were deliberately trying to entrap the Sri Lankans. And I, to be frank, I don't think this was the case at all. I seriously doubt it was true. What matters was that you had this mix of factors that created these externalities, that created these consequences, which could have had a strategic impact. You have China now with ostensible control of a port in a, a sensitive maritime situation position on the Indian Ocean and there is concern that longer term this could change you know the balance of power a maritime power in the Indian Ocean so this is what we're talking about by consequences. really really I, I really, look at just it, let me I'm not suggesting change that change the balance of power in the Indian Ocean I, I there are strategists in particular in India who are worried about this string of pearls strategy that China is trying to control ports in in strategically important places around the Indian Ocean and that could affect naval power. It's not my expertise. I'm not suggesting that this is a genuine fear, but rather that it is motivating a lot of the concern about Belt and Road. This is how geoeconomics works. Whether or not these are real fears, this is how the concerns are generated. And the point here is that it doesn't need to be intentional statecraft all the time. It can be ordinary economic transactions, in this case, infrastructure financing, that somehow leads to policy concessions in the non-economic space. That's the idea. In any event, the policy solution in the Myanmar case, as the article demonstrates, is that you can stop this mix of factors from arising in the first place by improving the quality of the initial financing agreements or renegotiating them. 
And as Myanmar officials observed in the article, this creates a genuine win-win situation. Chinese money leads to successful projects without strategic downsides that cause hyperventilation in other capitals in the region. Local communities benefit. China looks good because it has is successfully financed these projects. And you know, perhaps the best part from the point of view of the West is it is an extremely cost-effective form of geoeconomic strategy where essentially the United States and maybe even Australia is helping spend other people's money. So everybody's winning. I think it's a great thing. But Alan, are you sceptical that these strategic consequences are, are, are real? Is this all a bit too much hyperventilation? No, I, I just, I get a bit suspicious of uh, some of the overstatement that goes on from time to time, like, for example, the idea that Chinese uh, control of this uh, port could change the balance of you know, maritime power in the uh, in the Indian Ocean. I just think we've got to be we've got to be uh, careful and realistic when we're making uh, uh, judgments about uh, about the impact. I don't doubt that it's uh, advantageous, but I just think that there's some some you know vastly elaborate conspiracy theories sometimes being mounted, which of course is driving the response. You know, in this geoeconomic space. I mean, if if it is true that the control of this port is not really a big deal, then it it's also probably true that the West shouldn't worry nearly as much about you know, infrastructure diplomacy. So it's an interesting dilemma here that 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 if there are these you know, you know sort of shadows under the bed that are that are that are genuinely terrifying, then that would justify a renewed focus on geoeconomics and the insertion of a geoeconomic councillor and embassies across missions across the the world if the Labor government comes into power. But maybe it's also true that a lot of the the strategic consequences are overblown. Uh, and that the link between economics and security isn't nearly as strong um, as many make it out to be. So I guess that's part of part of the calculation. I'm simply trying to understand it. Uh, I, I, I certainly don't want our listeners to think that I'm, I'm telling them that there, these are genuine consequences for the balance of power in the Indian Ocean. That is far from my expertise. You can see the discussion on the part of Port of Darwin, for example, which I know a bit better than I know uh, the situation in in Sri Lanka. And there, I mean, I, th- I think that the decision to lease the port to a, to a Chinese uh, company uh, will not have the sort of geopolitical security externalities, mm. as you would as you would say, yes. that some of the uh, people talking about it are claiming. And that was certainly the view of, uh, you know, the central Australian security and defence agencies at the time. The distinction between uh, those who elevate those risks and those who dismiss them has often sort of fallen along the lines of sort of the economists and the, and the security strategists. And I've been trying to understand for many months now sort of what drives these different analytical frames. And one of the, one of the prop- hypotheses, I guess, uh, you could say that I have is it's a different attitude towards risk. Uh, yes, I agree with you that it's very unlikely uh, that Darwin um, and maybe even Hambantota in Sri Lanka could ever be used in a in a way that would have significant geopolitical consequences. But it's a question of how much how much risk are you comfortable with? And I, I suppose there are those in the national security community who do worry that even a small risk, if it manifests, could you know, become a, a significant deal um, and change change the balance of power in the region um and well the 
all I'm saying is that they perceive that risk and they have a different risk profile to economists and even you know, more even-handed strategists like yourself, Alan, who say, really, is it, that, is, it, is it that likely? Well, the proper role of the security agencies is to minimise risk, but the proper role of government is to manage risk. And so, as you say, the, the considerations can be different depending on uh, where you sit in the, uh, in the chain. Mm. And if you, you have a government, however, who is far more willing to listen to security agencies who are focused on minimising, then perhaps the government is, is no longer managing risk, but it is simply minimising it. And that can be as much of a problem as the opposite. Mm, very interesting. But Alan, I, I want to wrap up this section on geoeconomics with a process question. I think we touched on this when we debated the Hambantota and Darwin ports before. You know, there isn't a settled definition of geoeconomics in the IR literature or in the think tank world, and I'm trying to work on one which means I expect it's going to be a challenge for a new Australian government to form precise policy around geoeconomics. Um, you know, what advice would you have for policymakers and for a potentially a new government on this issue? Well, look, the, the discussion uh, in a policy process uh, sense in Canberra at the moment is, uh, is all about fusion. If the first decade of the century was all about the need to ensure the effective integration of the security agencies after, you know, the terrorist uh, attacks in Bali and so on. The challenge now is how to integrate security and economics. And that's going to be a great deal more difficult because it's much easier to, to bring together sort of spooks and analysts and coppers than it is economists and business people and security types mm. uh, but that's going to be the uh, the big challenge for whichever incoming government it turns out to be well let's move on to the final topic then um, and to try to sort of peer under the bonnet of Australian diplomacy to consider consular issues what the Australian government does to protect the interests of Australians abroad I raise this in the context of three very high profile cases of prominent members of the Australian community in recent months First, we have, of course, Julian Assange, who was evicted from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he had been holed up since 2012, and is now under arrest in the UK for violating bail and pending an extradition request from the United States. The second is Hakim Al-Araibi, a professional soccer player who was granted refugee status in Australia in 2017 and was arrested in Thailand pursuant to an Interpol red notice and extradition request from his native Bahrain, before being subsequently allowed to return to Australia and taking citizenship. And the third is Yang Hengjun, a prominent novelist and former Chinese official who became an Australian citizen in 2000 and had been living in New York as a visitor at Columbia University, but who was detained by authorities in late January when he travelled to China. It's unclear why he was detained, though friends have suggested it was because of his advocacy for democracy. Alan, each of these three cases poses its own unique issues and challenges. So can we start with a macro perspective? What exactly is Australia's role in these types of situations? And what are some of the trade-offs our political leaders and indeed consular officers on the ground face when working to safeguard the interests of individual Australians abroad? 
Oh, well, you, you, you can add to the cases that you were referring to the Australian-born children of the terrorist uh, Khalid uh, Sharif, which is a big uh, issue at the moment as well. Look, consular issues are very tricky for the government and for Australian diplomatic uh, missions at any time. They're the human face of foreign policy. So they're often the point at which the Australian public starts to take notice of events overseas. Around uh, a million Australians are overseas at any one time. That number's growing by 5% a year. So an awful lot of people with the potential to lose their passports or get drunk and fall down the steps or whatever. About uh, 1,500 people a day call on Australian consular services and over the course of a year, nearly 12,000 require serious assistance. Australia, uh, on the whole, provides one of the world's more generous uh, consular assistance services, but Australian travellers are told repeatedly, uh, once you're travelling overseas, you're subject to someone else's law. As you say, each case is different, but those that are in the public eye are usually there because they have some degree of access to power even if it's only understanding how to manage the media. Mm. Uh, cert certainly, I think there are more heart-wrenching stories around at the moment than Julian Assange's. He has access to international attention and he has powerful support as well, and I acknowledge this, as well as powerful enemies. And he's subject to a legal system that any of us would regard as one of the world's fairest. Let me add a personal note on this. Uh, the consular work of Australian missions is really important in human terms. When I was a scruffy 19-year-old um, many years ago, uh, travelling very cheaply on my university holidays in India and Nepal, I, I found myself the object of a scam involving a bike which I had rented in Kathmandu being stolen back by the person who had rented it to me uh, in some sort of alliance with the local cops. So, uh, you know, alone in Kathmandu, I was threatened with jail unless I handed over more money than I had available to me. And having no experience of life at all, apart from reading lots of novels, I said to my persecutor that I demanded to see the British ambassador. Uh, Australia had no diplomatic representation there ourselves in those days. And to my astonishment, someone from the British embassy, um, a consular official presumably, uh, came to the counter when we eventually reached the place and negotiated my paying a much smaller amount. Presumably he knew what the going rate for this scam was. But, but I can still remember the relief in finding someone who could help me at a stressful time negotiate an alien environment. And there are many more people in much more threatening positions than I ever was. So uh, here's to the consular officials in Australian posts. Here, here. I fully agree. Uh, but let me push you on the high profile cases a little bit more, Alan. Over the weekend, Greens leader Richard Di Natale called for the Australian government to make representations on behalf of Assange to the US government, citing the principle of press freedom. Civil society groups have called on the Australian government to demand the release of Yang in China, and to my knowledge, the government has not made this call uh, as of yet. In both cases, there is an argument, I think, that these are not straightforward cases of criminal justice system doing its thing. In the Assange case, whatever you think of him, there are those making arguments about freedom of the press. And in the Yang case, we don't even know why he is being detained. 
and confidence that he is going to receive a fair and impartial judicial process is quite low. So, Alan, what is the decision-making calculus that a government would typically apply when considering when to intervene on behalf of individuals caught in these types of high-profile situations? I think there are a number of factors that come into play. Um, I mean, the first is whether the cause is just. So, for example, in cases of capital punishment, the Australian uh, government will always go in to argue the case. A second consideration is whether intervention will be effective, sometimes making it high profile and going on television and thumping the desk can be effective. Mm. Sometimes, sometimes it will be completely counterproductive and that's something that will can only be judged in each individual case. Uh, so sometimes there are other issues that can come into play. Another factor is uh, domestic concerns, whether this has become a case that governments feel under pressure to respond to. Um, we saw that, I think, in the case of Hakim al-Arabi. Um, and there the issue was reinforced by the fact that it was basically an Australian stuff-up which had caused him to be in that position in the uh, first place. With Assange, look, we, you know, the process is already underway. We trust that process uh, much more than we trust the Chinese process, for example, and uh, it needs time to play itself out. Okay, well, let's, as always, turn to our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment? Uh, look, I'm going to. I, I normally recommend things that I <laughs> that I fully agree with, and today I'm going to uh, do the reverse. This is um, an article by Robert Kagan, which appeared in the Washington Post uh, recently, called "The Strong Men Strike Back." It's a version of his book, which I haven't yet read, called "The Jungle Grows Back." The reason I'm sort of talking about it is that it's obviously having an influence in policy circles in Canberra, so it's important to understand it. Uh, Kagan was one of the fathers of the neoconservatives in the US and his argument is that the central challenge in the world these days is the growing divide between authori authoritarian states and liberal democracy. Uh, he calls this uh, a profound ideological as well as strategic challenge. And of course, on the side of the authoritarian states, you have China and Russia leading and on the side of the uh, liberal democracy, the United States, as the exemplar. Now, I'd, I'd certainly define myself as a uh, liberal, uh, you know, in terms of Enlightenment values, but I don't think Kagan's binary approach is a particularly useful way of defining the world we're in at the moment. Um, I think there's far too little reflection on his part on the actions on our side, including the Iraq war, which facilitated recent developments. And I also think he, he sort of downplays the populist trends that we're seeing in the US and Europe, which sort of also having these the sort of uh, authoritarian impacts. So I don't agree with it, but it's still well worth, uh, well worth reading. Why do you think it's had so much attention in Canberra? Is there a particular element of the argument or the moment in Australian politics? I think people... I think people want to understand the world with clarity. Now, unfortunately, I don't think the world is, uh, you know, I, I see the world in 
various murky shades <laughs> shades of grey. But people are looking for frameworks within within which to uh, to understand it, and this is a framework which uh, puts you know China in one one box and and uh, all authoritarian states in one box and the United States uh, and its allies in another. So and and Kagan is you know is a persuasive writer. As I say, I don't I don't think it's a particularly useful way of uh, understanding things. It reminds me of uh, something that one of my old teachers in my, in my PhD program uh, wrote once about being wrong. He, he sort of was arguing that it's it's good to be wrong as long as you are clearly wrong, um, <laughs> and that way people people can engage with you. It's yeah. not it's not good to be correct, but so you know, complex that, that no one understands what you're trying to say. So a lot of the literature, and I think this is true in public policy, public policy discourse as well, has been driven by those who are wrong but so clearly wrong that everyone is able to disagree with them very simply. Well, I can't let this week in which the first episode of Game of Thrones uh, has been released uh, pass without mentioning uh, some of my favourite Game of Thrones content on the internet. So that's my recommendation this week. You know, it strikes me as maybe the last time we will have a television show that is going to attract you know near universal attention. Uh, and you know, as much as watching the episodes, I'm enjoying reading about them afterwards, um, which makes the time difference uh, a bit sad because I can't follow it live on Twitter. Um, but I'll make two recommendations. Um, one I've recommended before is the work of, of Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion at the Ringout website. And they have a show called Talk the Thrones, which is live streamed on Twitter, but you can watch it after, after it's finished. Um, and they had, I think, three million views of their show uh, in the hours after the Game of Thrones episode um, finished, which is really quite remarkable. And I've recommended them before, and all I will say is if they were my professors of English literature at university, you know, I would have, without question, that would have been my major. I mean, they make the content so interesting and engaging and educational that it's it's really a lot of fun. Uh, and, the second and the second recommendation comes from our intern, Charlie Henshaw, um, who is very interested in a lot of the political science nerd content about Game of Thrones. And there was a particular article on Vox.com, um, which is entitled, who will win Game of Thrones explained by political science? And I'll link to that in the show notes. But there's a lot of articles out there and books being written about uh, about this. Alan? Yeah. Now, I also think that um, harking back to the main theme of the podcast today, Game of Thrones is interesting in fantasy literature uh, because of the role of geoeconomics. Uh, most fantasy doesn't have much economics in it, but Game of Thrones from the financing control of the... Uh, what is it? The Bank of Bank of uh, the Bravos. Iron Bank of Bravos, uh, yes. Iron Bank of Bravos, to the role of the uh, slave trade to Dornish wine. Trade and geoeconomics play uh, an important part in it. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank our intern from the AAA, Charlie Henshaw, for his help with research and audio editing and Game of Thrones recommendations as well as Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>